This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no kidding. There are explanations for why the Janos people are all just white folks. I am just as shocked as you are. Well, not explanations. It's weird. So this is The Janos People, part two. In this episode, we're going to conclude our look at Frank Johnson's book, The Janos People, A Close Encounter of the Fourth Kind. What awaits us? Long, dull descriptions of spaceship interiors and awkward discussions about race. Let's get started. So, if you haven't listened to The Janos People Part 1, I urge you to go ahead and do that because I'm not going to provide a lot of background information or recap sort of things apart from this. This is a book about the Janos people, people from the doomed planet Janos, which was destroyed by one of its moons, who then, now, then, now, forever, roam the universe in their spaceships looking for a way home. It's got some real uh, I think Joshua Cutchin pointed this out on Facebook, uh, and I agree. It's got some real Battlestar Galactica sort of overtones to it. So these Janos people abduct, I guess it was an abduction, invite, invite in a very pushy way, a family of British people on board their spaceship in the late 1970s. Book comes out about it in the early 1980s. When we last left the Janos people, a close encounter of the fourth kind, the woman, the um, the sister of the man who was um, there, uh, Francis, man's name was John, had just gotten done talking to Yulia Yuxia, the leader of the Janos people, or one of the leaders of the Janos people, about their plans. And now it is time for John's examination. So as we begin the chapter, chapter seven, where John is examined, he meets a fellow whose name is spelled A-N-O-U-X-I-A. Now... On a Facebook Live thing that I did, I pronounced this Anuxia, even though deep down, because I'd read the book, I knew this wasn't correct. But a uh, listener and longtime saucer scholar Martin Kottmeyer sent me an email correcting my pronunciation of it as Anuxia, saying, quite rightly, that Anuxia's proper pronunciation is Anoyuxia, as listed on page 79. He goes on to say, Frank Johnson would insist on this since the names, quote, hang together linguistically in an archaic Greek sort of family way. Martin also included a scan of the letter he wrote about this to Jim Mosley's Saucer Smear newsletter back in the day. And the letter from 1987 reads as follows, and I do have to read this in its entirety because it is it is brilliant, and I am so grateful for Martin for sending me this. Martin wrote, 
I have been doing some entomological experimentation on the names of euphonauts and just turned up something of almost exquisite significance. I was looking into a claim made by Frank Johnson in his abductee epic The Janos People that the proper names appearing in that UFO experience fit together in a quote linguistic family relationship which could not have been contrived by mere fantasy. I found one relationship which does boggle the mind. The apparent captain of the UFO was named Anoyuxia. Ano is a Latin prefix which refers to the anus. Yux can be considered a corruption of the Middle English word uke, which means to itch. The ia suffix commonly appears in words denoting pathological conditions, such as pneumonia. Anoyuxia, thus, can be shown to have a linguistically sensible, albeit embarrassing, structure and meaning. Anoyuxia's homeworld is Janus. The name is obviously derived from the Roman god Janus. James Fraser in The Golden Bough reports Janus was the god of the sky, an identification which underscores the likelihood of the derivation. Fraser traces Janus to a corruption of the name Dianus. He also reports that D.I. is an Aryan root meaning bright. Yes, fellow proctoeufologists, we are led to conclude Anoyuxia's homeworld can be identified as bright anus. Could fantasy alone contrive such an unexpectedly natural and subtle relationship as this? I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Saucer Life has the smartest listeners of any UFO podcast. I will bet money on that. Of course, if you're talking Flying Saucer podcasts, any podcast that Martin Kottmeyer listens to could claim the same thing because he is he is brilliant. He's uh, He's contributed a lot of interesting information to this show over the years. So John is in this ship and he is going to be examined. And this examination chapter is not too different from what we see with Francis. Um, He's clamped to a chair, which is sort of the usual thing for the Janos people. He's shown various oscilloscope patterns and we get boring, but almost lovingly detailed descriptions of aspects of this examination room. And there's a picture of the examination room up on uh, the Saucer Life's social media sites. And I'm not going to say it looks a little bit like the sick bay on Star Trek, but it looks a little bit like the sick bay on Star Trek. I'm going to have to be honest about that. But here's an example of the kind of detailed descriptions we have of some of the control surfaces and equipment on the ship. The desk has a sloping top, the lower side being toward the instrument panel and away from the chair. There are instruments on the sloping surface generally similar to those on the wall panel, which carries a variety of knobs, switches, controls, meters, and little colored domes that light up. The height of the desk is such that it forms a convenient working surface for a not very tall person who stands on the platform, facing into the room. There are no instruments on the vertical front of the desk facing the chair. There are paragraphs and paragraphs of this dear listener and i am not sure that there's a purpose for it i wonder if and actually this is this is my suspicion johnson thought that providing this level of detail or you know whoever told johnson the story that the family or whoever john um they thought this would be more convincing and make it more convincing But I'm not sure how convincing a spaceship with chairs and people in jumpsuits and control panels with blinky buttony things, I'm not sure how convincing that is to me. I'm not sure that a a spaceship designed like that 
would be capable of interstellar travel. I, I, I don't know. I'm no expert, but I'm just wondering if that might be the case. They were trying to go for some kind of verisimilitude, but end up with basically what sounds a lot like the control panels on the bridge of the Enterprise, the blinky buttons, the little domed lights sometimes, the gauges that are on the control panels on the bridge and other control surfaces of the Enterprise as well. I always wondered, even as a kid, why they've got needles moving back and forth that look less sophisticated than, you know, what we had in our house sometimes, or the same as what we had in our house. Of course, I was like five and didn't realize it was a you know, TV show from the 60s. I, I think I thought it was really from the future. And the control desk that the not very tall person is standing behind, it in the drawing, it looks like the sort of control panel island in the transporter room. It, I really think this was influenced by Star Trek. I, I really do. And I did some looking around. And the original Star Trek was broadcast in the UK beginning in 1969, pretty much right after or right at the end of the original run of the show in the United States, it gets picked up on British television. So it's it's not out of the realm of possibility that people in the mid to late 70s would have been influenced even unconsciously by the uh, the existence of Star Trek. So John's examination is, is for much the same purpose as Francis's was to determine whether or not life on Earth would be compatible with what the Janos people need. I wasn't sure at first why they needed to examine two people, but then I thought maybe they wanted to examine a man and a woman. And indeed, it is a woman who carries out parts of John's examination. Now, the next chapter has John visiting the engine room of the ship, and unsurprisingly, it is also full of boring descriptions. John had also seen that the perimeter of the upper deck, which we came to think of as the rotor deck, was enclosed by a thick circular wall of a dull gray color. This is noteworthy as one of the few exceptions to the ubiquitous white or silvery surfaces of almost everything in the spaceship. At six points, equally spaced around the circle, the gray wall was interrupted by a gap of about the width of a normal doorway, which gave access to the rotor deck itself, extending radially outward from each of the six gaps with a catwalk of the same perforated metal just a single four-foot-wide strip bridging the space between the wall gap and a doorway in the outer wall. To be more precise, although he did not realize it at the time, a design analysis shows that four of the six catwalks extended right out to the outer wall of the engine room, but two of them, forming an opposite pair, ran across to meet the somewhat nearer wall segments behind the balconies. The engine itself involves things that spin around and generate some kind of anti-gravity force. I don't know. It was beyond me. I I can't understand earth machinery, much less space machinery. What I find more interesting is that they decided to show the man the engine room and not the woman, which apparently means the Janos people have some of the same, I don't know, you know, gender stereotypes that we have here on earth. I, maybe Francis wanted to see the engine room. They didn't even ask her. No, they just, they just take her and, 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 Francis gets the story about the people and what their history is and their story and the social stuff. Take John to see the machines. I, I just thought that was a little bit interesting. We'll get more of that description of their life and their lifestyle and their history coming up. So in the next chapter, which is called Pictures in the Navigating Screen, John is given more tours of the ship, more things, more descriptions of how it flies. And there's a great part where 
John doesn't understand how things work. And Johnson says this, this is just phrased wonderfully. Quote, it should be remembered that John, while an intelligent man and skilled in his occupation, does not have the specialized training which might have made some sense of the button pressing. End quote. Knowledge of the button pressing. So in this chapter, they're, they're seeing some things on a navigating screen. It's, again, largely a very boring chapter. But there are some things in it that are pretty interesting. One of these is a description or an image of the Earth from space. And there are some things about this that are pretty, I don't know. It's just weird. Let's see what you think. Next, he saw a picture of the Earth from space. He recognized the shape of Africa, and Anayuxia said the word Earth. An oddity of the pictures of planets which he saw in the screen is that they show no cloud pattern, even where one is present at all times. One could not photograph Earth from space without recording the characteristic delicate fleecy veil of white clouds, and Janos, seen later, likewise had no clouds. It may be that the photo technology employed was such that it did not show clouds, so that the planetary surface was sharp and clear. This would be an advantage in their accustomed task of planet survey. John is convinced that it really was the Earth, and not a model. Uh, folks, I'm pretty sure he was not looking at an actual photograph of, of the Earth. I think he was looking at, like, a model or a globe or something that they put up on a screen. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I can see the emails now about me always going to this conclusion. But the blinky buttony things, the picture of the Earth, the fact that they're all dressed like stereotypical contactee people, this is just... This just feels like somebody playing a joke on this family or a sinister experiment for some bizarre purpose. But it just does not seem like an actual space encounter. But it's sort of clear to me just from what I'm reading in this book that these people might have encountered something and they have these similar stories and and dreams and everything. I don't know. It's weird. I like it, but it's weird. The chapter of pictures in a navigating screen ends with a trip where the ship is going down a tunnel or the view screen looks like they're going down a tunnel. They're they're basically watching more home movies. And then in the next chapter, we have an underground encounter. Underground being what was at the other end of the tunnel, obviously. And it's during this underground encounter that we begin to learn more about the fate of the Janos people who did not make it on to the rescue ships before disaster occurred. And it's kind of grim. And this grimness is sort of indicative of this came up in the, the letters from listeners thing we did with the, uh, the saucer wife in the last episode, but there is a sense that this is much more science fictional than classic contactee, style things. Um, Josh Cutchin mentioned um, mentioned Battlestar Galactica. I've noted the similarities to Star Trek as, as far as design stuff goes. And the overall narrative is very, it, it sounds like a story. It sounds like a story somebody made up. But what is history but a story historians have assembled from documents and evidence and things like that and and sort of crafting a narrative around those pieces of evidence. So just because something sounds like a story doesn't mean that it isn't a story that's real. 
Although, spoiler, I don't think the story's real. But we get some interesting little bits of what this whole experience was like for the Janos people. And we also get some of the social consciousness and preachiness that we so often associate with contactee stories. I have told in the prologue how many people caught by the unexpectedly early beginning of Rockfall had made for the tunnels. If they were near enough and had made their way, it must have been a long way, to the shipyards deep underground where they expected to find safety and supplies. But their death certificates were signed from the moment seen by Francis when the first nuclear power station exploded, triggering off all the others right around the planet in a giant chain reaction. They had a matter of months to live at most. Nothing could be done for them. The people in the ship's safety in orbit did not know what had happened to them, or even if there were any survivors. Certainly, there were none on the surface. I think the nuclear power thing is interesting. It isn't so much preachiness about the dangers, inherent dangers of nuclear power, but just of the dangers and risk of nuclear power plants exploding, which is much more of a 70s kind of concern about nuclear power than a 50s era concern about nuclear power, which is mostly focused on weapons and things. But the 1970s were an era of nuclear crises. In the United States, you have Three Mile Island, for example, and movie-wise, you've got the China Syndrome. So we've got all sorts of interesting nuclear things sort of happening in the background of popular culture. And while China Syndrome came out in 1979, which is after John and Francis and everybody's encounter, the book was written and the hypnosis done after the movie was out. So it's possible that it could have been an influence or at least something floating around in the popular culture that would have triggered thoughts as they were recounting their experiences. Possibly much more on the mind of people in the UK, especially people who were adults in the 1970s, would have been the Windscale Fire of October 1957, which was the worst nuclear plant disaster in the history of the United Kingdom. And one of, Wikipedia tells me, one of the worst in the world. So there's a scale of one out of seven um, of severity for nuclear events. I don't know why one out of seven. That's kind of weird. But the wind scale disaster was level five. So there is, you know, precedent for people of a certain age. John and Francis would have been young adults at the time the wind scale fire took place. That would have been in their minds. So dangers of nuclear catastrophe that aren't weapons based yeah they would be on people's minds they would sort of be burned into the uh, the consciousness of people who lived through these events now i should be clear that i'm not saying i'm you know drawing a direct line from these pop culture things or these you know the, the wind scale fire to what francis and john talked about after their experiences with the janos people i'm just saying it's one of those things that was in sort of the mix even though you know china syndrome and i think three mile island were both 79 like i said in their minds at the time the book was being researched and compiled and written and also in the 1970s you've got protests against nuclear power you've got ecological movements you've got the environmental movement you know sort of gearing up during that decade so the dangers of nuclear power plants and using them as the reason why so many people died or at least one of the reasons, a contributing factor to so many deaths. I, I think it's reasonable to connect that to some of the real-world concerns about nuclear power that were going on at the time. So Johnson continues 
this narrative of what was happening with this group of people who had taken shelter beneath the surface of the planet. When they knew the truth, when the rescue ships came, lifting heavy rocks to clear the choked tunnel mouths, the ship people suffered a deep psychological trauma, which leaves its scars to this day. They could not help the dying people beyond organizing as best they could for their relief, without themselves running the risk of picking up radioactive contamination which might spread to the ships in orbit. See? Now that's grim. But there was something they could do, like very little they could do. But they came up with this sort of outfit to help them. And it was described as a robe with a hood. Someone, in a thoughtful moment, devised the monk's clothing to give them better protection against the lethal dust. Perhaps they did it themselves. Our witnesses were told that this was not their normal clothing, but a special garment designed to keep the dust off them. It was much later that Francis recalled the film of the happy, carefree times before the disaster, which has given us our only glimpse of normal private life on the old Janos. And this entire incident has Johnson questioning some of the ethics of the Janos people. We have wondered sometimes why, knowing that the doomed people underground faced a certain but lingering death, they did not give them a merciful euthanasia rather than let each individual life drag out its slow and inevitable end. One can only imagine that the idea of mercy killing is just not in the Janos people's philosophy. What I find most interesting about that is that in a contactee book written by the contactee, you might get some indication that I asked them why this was and they explained their philosophy didn't allow it. But because this book wasn't written by the contactee, and I am going to use the word contactee instead of abductee for this, because it was written by a third person, he has this question that maybe John or Francis didn't ask. There's, there's no indication that John or Francis was concerned about this, although that we um, that he puts in there, we wondered, maybe that's a plural, maybe it's an authorial sort of royal we, I'm not sure. So now the time has come to leave the ship, and before they do, they are given a beverage. Ooh, a beverage. Let's see what Johnson has to say about this beverage and what he thinks it was actually for. Undoubtedly, the fizzy drink also contained a hypnosis-predisposing drug. Such drugs, Jeff told me, are well known on Earth. The post-hypnotic suggestion that they would remember only that they had been driving would be much strengthened by the drug, which they were told would help them to forget. And no doubt it prepared their minds for the artificial pseudo-experience of the narrow lane. The children had little or none of the drink, Their memories of the whole incident were clear, though there was probably a degree of mild amnesia in Natasha. Her memories have a bit of reappearing in stages, like those of the adults. As far as we can tell, the children have no recollection of the cover story drive. It is also noteworthy that Gloria, whose amnesia of the spaceship visit remains almost total, has a very clear memory of the one part of the story that wasn't real. Now, if you know me, You know I'm not going to be able to not see a fizzy drink being given to somebody and it having psychological effects on them without invoking Orfeo Angelucci. And if you want to know what that is, go back and listen to our episode about Orfeo Angelucci if you have not done so. So they're off the ship. This is the end really of their abduction slash contact story. And what we move into next or what we will move into next after our usual break is some discussion of the Janos people, including 
questions of race and nationality and politics and some interesting things like that. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. We'll be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about this episode, and I'm dragging the saucer wife back into the studio as well to get her opinions. So uh, that episode with the saucer wife got a tremendous amount of feedback, and the numbers were way up. So um, she's worried about not being a draw. She's a draw, I think. So we'll be back in a week fielding your questions about this episode. Get them to me in the comments under this episode on the website, on social media, through email, all the usual ways. Uh, we had some great ones last time about the first part of the Janos people, some of which I've held over to sort of incorporate into part two. So actually, that might be a thing I do more of in the future, especially for big topics, kind of, yeah, I don't know thinking out loud. Probably shouldn't do that while recording, but uh, who knows? Then on the next episode, it's a fun contactee criminal case when we look at the story of Harold Burney. And for those playing along at home, this was going to be Adamski's cosmic philosophy, but I've decided that's more of a January topic. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I don't want to read Adamski's cosmic philosophy book until the new year. I'm a procrastinator, but we will be getting to it. You can check out past episodes and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes, and we greatly appreciate the support. As always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by post at Media Department A, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And now... Let's see what's going on with these Janos people. Let's learn a little bit more about their life and lifestyle. So the chapter on the Janos people has different sections about different aspects of their life and civilization. And some of it just recaps what we've already learned. A lot of it in the first part of the chapter is about the ship and how they make their spaceships and all this stuff and as you know by now, I've been doing this for four years, and I do, oh my gosh, I've been doing this for four years. Anyway, I do not like to get bogged down in fake UFO technical detail. It just does not interest me at all, and since this is my show, I'm not going to spend time on it. Not when there is a section entitled Food and Animals. And what I like best about the food and animals story is that the first sentence is, our information on these subjects is scanty. And then it just repeats a lot of what we know, including repeating the details about the barbecue food, dark colored flesh. Euxia Yulia called it meat and said, we get them from the rivers. Yes, we know. We read that in this same book about 50 pages earlier. They mostly eat fruits and vegetables. They don't eat a lot of meat, but they do have animals for food. Um, they have sheep dogs. They have wolf dogs as hunting dogs at some point that they've used in the past. Johnson says that the fact that they're eating meat from the water indicates fishing and fisheries, but that the animals were not fish as we understand them. So I'm not sure what they are. I think my favorite part of the food and animal section is the last paragraph. It's fascinating to me for reasons that are quite boring. On a picnic occasion, the people ate with their fingers, but indoors they may have been more formal. We do not know, and Francis was shown no picture, unfortunately, of a domestic interior. Reader, they may use forks, but only inside. 
who knows? So we move on then to the clothing and hairstyles section. Women wear eye makeup. That's interesting. And we get a description of the uniforms that the people on the ship were wearing. And what's fascinating about this, fascinating and kind of dumb, is that we already knew this. I didn't tell you because I was saving it for this section because I needed more for the second half of the episode, you know, but we already get a description of all of these things. This chapter about the Janos people is basically just a summary of things we've already learned from the rest of the book, which is, which is very much a freshman comp trying to stretch out the paper to the required length kind of move. In the spaceship, most of the crew of both sexes wore, as part of the uniform, a close-fitting silver balaclava helmet showing only the face. Some, at least, of the helmets had an ear covering in very thin silver, which was modeled to follow the lobes of the ears. At least one man, Anayuxia, wore gloves of thin silver. We get descriptions of the types of insignia and styles of clothing. Sometimes there were dresses when they're not wearing their silly balaclava or sorry, space balaclava helmets and jumpsuits and thin silver gloves and sorts of things. We get some testimony that they may have telepathic abilities, which we knew because that's how they were communicating elsewhere in the book. We also get a glimpse into their politics and Johnson connects their politics and and personalities in general to the catastrophe they as a people have suffered. Our combined impression of the Janos people is that while there are clear indications of differences of individual temperament and point of view, they are very united and very close to each other. Doubtless, their common tragic experience has bound them together, but they seem by nature very united. They clearly attach great importance to everything being done by general agreement. There is no place in Janos society, as we understand it, for the dictator, king, or boss type. In the spaceship, of necessity, some give orders and others obey, but our witnesses sensed an underlying equality. Just like on the Starship Enterprise and in the United Federation of Planets, there's a hierarchy because we need it, but let's share all our opinions and and come to some sort of consensus, even though Captain Kirk does have the final say. It really, really does sound very, if not directly inspired or influenced by, very sort of in the shadow of Star Trek. And then we get into some of the really interesting stuff, which is about race and ethnicity in the section that Johnson has titled physical type and race. And this will serve to answer a couple questions we got from listeners about part one. Vincent Trewell asked, quote, the biggest question about the Janos people, in my opinion, is why are they all white? In what scenario do prehistoric humans leave and return to Earth with one ethnicity which matches current Earthlings? Do you think this is simply obliviousness on the part of the author or a hidden agenda suggesting white superiority? Similarly, Lester asked, do U.S. contactees always meet space aliens who look Nordic? I will throw U.K. contactees in here as well since we're in the Janos people. Does no one ever encounter space aliens who look Papuan or Chinese or whatever? There is enormous variety in human appearance. Why don't we see this in space aliens? Do we just notice aliens who look like the U.S. or, in this case, U.K., I add, ideal? And no reptoids, no octopoids or intelligent crabs? No giant sponges with eyes on stalks, as in Lovecraft's shadow out of time? Thank you, Lester and Vincent. Let's see what Johnson has to say about this, because so far we've seen a lot of white people from Janos. 
All the people seen in the spaceship, and all those seen in films of the planet, were without exception of the Nordic-European type, very fair-skinned, with light blue eyes and yellow blonde hair. So, there you have it. However, Johnson does acknowledge that this is kind of weird, or not, not weird so much as unexpected, and he's searching for an explanation, and he does make some interesting observations about what our witnesses saw. We cannot, of course, be sure that all the Janos people conform to this type. Our witnesses saw less than a hundred people in all. There's a possibility that other racial types may be represented in other ships, if this is so, and it does seem to be suggested by some incidents reported from other parts of the world. It must mean that whatever the circumstances in which their ancestors left Earth long ago, more than one local group was involved. This sounds good, but Johnson also acknowledges that from his reading, people only ever seem to meet space people who match that Nordic type. And I think that in a lot of cases where you're dealing with contactees, especially in the United States and Great Britain, it's very much as as Lester suggested that witnesses notice aliens who look like them in a lot of cases. Now, where you have some situations like in Japan, as we saw a couple weeks ago, where you had people in Japan, native residents of Japan, encountering space brothers who looked like in many ways, typical Caucasian space brothers, there I think there's a lot of influence from existing contactee material playing a role there. It's a difficult question. Also a difficult question that Johnson addresses in the last chapter, chapter 13, under whose flag, is the question of where the Janos people are going to actually live once they come back to Earth. He acknowledges this is a difficult situation, but also says that There are positive things that will happen when the Janos people arrive, and I'm not sure, but I think he might be overestimating their potential influence. Perhaps the Janos people, humanity with a different history, can help us to remember what human really means. An example and a strong lead backed by the authority of great knowledge could really start something in this tormented planet, a movement of ordinary common folk which would put an end to cruelty and inhumanity, and would assert the right of ordinary private people to decide how our world should be ordered. A movement which would keep political, military, and economic power in check, and uphold the freedom and dignity of the individual. A movement which would do away with labels and categories like Jews, Arabs, Blacks, Whites, Reds, women, bosses, workers, and leave us just as plain John Smith and Mary Jones. No titles, no labels, just people. No masses, no categories, just individuals. Yeah, good luck with that, Frank. Um, and I'm probably reading too much into this, but why can't we just be, you know, Bill Smith and Mary Jones? Why, why can't everybody just accept everybody as equals in my personal category of generic English person? So there's, there's that. Uh, I notice in his things to get rid of his list of categories, he's, he mentions women. He doesn't mention men which I find a little bit uh, a little bit telling, although maybe, again, I might be reading too much into it. But as to the question of where the Janos people should settle, he's got some ideas and some, I don't know what the absence of an idea is, but he's got some of those too. He thinks Australia or New Zealand could work, although there would have to be, quote, due regard for the welfare of the aboriginal population, end quote. Well, yes, I think there would be. How about Africa? 
Africa would not be a good choice because, although there is room to spare, it would create needless political frictions to try to introduce a large additional population of white people. It's nice to see that Johnson is astute enough to recognize that a recolonization of the African continent by white folks from outer space would probably not be very welcome. What about Southeast Asia? There may be possibilities in Southeast Asia, but because I do not know the area, I leave it to others to offer suggestions. You know, one thing we can say about Frank Johnson, he is not afraid to admit when he may be in over his head. Well, what about Southeast Asia? Maybe. I don't know anything about it, but maybe somebody does. That's refreshing honesty, and it just sort of tickles me. You don't get that kind of, I just don't know attitude from these books much of the time. So where else would not be a good option? There would, I think, be objections to a territory being offered to Janos which was directly controlled by the United States, the Soviet Union, or China. Janos as a nation must be given the chance of making its own choice of alignment or of remaining non-aligned. The more independent Janos can remain, the more valuable its presence will be in the Earth. Johnson actually is pretty savvy here. Um... Despite his optimism about what the Janos people could do for humanity as far as helping us overcome the differences between us and the conflicts that we have, he recognizes that they could also be a destabilizing factor in the Cold War. I love how he sort of brings up the idea of the Janos people being a non-aligned nation. And maybe he probably isn't thinking in these terms, perhaps, but as part of the larger non-alignment movement during the Cold War, especially among post-colonial nations and decolonizing nations. So if the superpowers are a no-go, if Australia is maybe an option, if Southeast Asia won't work because he doesn't know anything about it, and if Africa is politically untenable, where should the Janos people go? The answer is kind of obvious. And this is what Johnson uses to close out the book. This is the end of the book. The last line you will hear here is the end of the book, apart from an appendix. It remains the continent of Europe, the continent from which the ancestors of the Janos people originated long ago. One could look at it this way, where, from an ethnic and cultural point of view, would the Janos people feel most at home? They are more like the Scandinavians than any other terrestrial group, not only in physical appearance, but temperamentally. One could think of the Janos people as space Vikings, wanderers on the galactic ocean, now returning home to the Northlands of their forefathers and foremothers. Scandinavia has great numbers of islands, but only one of them is of any considerable use, Iceland, whose language and culture is perhaps closest to the Norse of antiquity. What is perhaps more to the point is that Norway, Sweden, and Finland, considered together, have a lot of spare space to the northward, and what would appeal to the Janos people, any number of lakes and fjords. Like Canada, there would be the problem of learning to live through the winter cold. I would like to see these three nations, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, consider together whether they could find room between them for a new and very old Nordic people. Certainly there is room to spare in the northward, though due care would need to be taken to safeguard the welfare of the people of Lapland. There would be a rightness in the Janos people living once more in Europe. Well, it seems like an easy enough solution to me. So before we get to the reaction and and everything about the book, I just want to sort of share my thoughts about what I think was going on here. And that is, I have no idea 
this is so weird. And this feels like a cop-out, but I kind of wanted to fall back to my earlier sort of supposition that somebody was setting this whole thing up for some kind of either humorous or nefarious purpose. Maybe it was to, I don't know. Please send your theories about what might have happened to the saucer life at gmail.com or contact us through any of our social media channels because I've got no idea. This is just such a strange story, but it's a fun one. And it's clearly influenced by earlier iterations of contactee and abductee lore. I think it's interesting because you do have the hypnotic regression stuff that becomes vogue or in vogue sort of around this time, early, late 70s, early 80s. You're starting to get this stuff. You've already had it with uh, Pascagoula. I almost said Tuscagoula, but that's not right. Pascagoula and the the Betty and Barney Hill cases. Um, You're going to see much more. In the future, I think it's this weird sort of hybrid, and I really like the story. Now, as to the reaction, in Flying Saucer Review, the venerable British publication, Jenny Randalls wrote about a presentation Johnson gave on the very same day that the book was published, which is pretty interesting. And it's also interesting um, what she does not say. Next came Frank Johnson, whose book The Janos People was published by Neville Spearman that day. This book will be reviewed shortly in FSR, and as the talk was basically just a presentation of this complex CE4 case, I will not say other than it provoked many questions and some lively controversy. I think that is very polite Jenny Randall's speak for they laughed him out of the room. She does say in um, later cited quotations in a book um, the book was called uh, In Alien Heat, The Warminster Mystery Revisited. And yes, we will be covering the Warminster mystery. Uh, Jenny Randalls said that the investigator Frank Johnson apparently, quote, left the country in despair when UFO researchers refused to endorse him and the media laughed his book into oblivion. I have In Alien Heat from Amazon. They have got a Kindle version, which is awesome. I do not have yet the book that this quotation from Jenny Randall's was cited from. So I don't have access to that one yet. Now in alien heat, incidentally did describe uh, the Janos mystery um, in some detail. And they said, quote, Janos, it has to be said was suburban heaven. It is lower middle-class aspiration writ large barbecues, power boating on lakes, lots of leisure time. All work is done by machines. Yeah, that's a good summary. Lower middle class aspiration writ large. So this is one of those books that did not have, I think, the kind of impact that other abductee or contactee books had because it does sort of drop in between those two categories. Now, Jenny Randalls did return to the book, um, the story briefly in her book, Mind Monsters. She discusses some of the work of Arthur Kessler, who in 1978 suggested that UFOs were a product of, quote, our sickness as a human race. And this sort of paralleled our rush to destroy ourselves through nuclear war. He said the truth behind the Satan legend was buried within ourselves. The book was called Janus, after, Randall says, the two-faced god. And then she says, almost exactly as it was released, a family in Oxfordshire had a UFO encounter, lost time, were put under hypnosis, 
and an amazing memory poured out and then was compiled into the book. She says, quote, I spoke to the witnesses. They were sincere. The aliens in this encounter claimed they were once of Earth and were returning to live here and to warn us after having destroyed their own planet through nuclear mishaps and pollution. The symbolism is clear, especially when we learned that the alien moon which triggered the destruction was called Satan, and the planet from whence they had fled, like interstellar refugees, was Janus. If nothing else suggests that part of the UFO phenomenon emerges from ourselves, then certainly this incredibly appropriate case must do. I think you could say that about a lot of contactee cases, that the fears and the hopes that they convey are from within ourselves in a certain way, pouring out in maybe a tangible form that people experience. It's an interesting idea, and I think it's at least as interesting, if maybe not as plausible, as just proclaiming, ah, they made it up to cases like this, or assuming in some convoluted way that this was some kind of mind control experimentation. Both of those things are perhaps more likely, but I don't think they're as interesting as the idea that Randall's presents here. In the end, the Janos people became, if not while I was reading it, certainly while I was talking about it, one of my favorite contactee cases just for well, just for the space kebabs, I'm going to be honest. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social or media channels, and I'll address it on our episode next week. And then the Saucer Life will address me, and then I will address her in return. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and the Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the Janos people. Till next time, keep watching the rivers because some of that dark sort of chunks of flesh might come up and you can put them on your barbecue. And also the skies are watching you and you should watch them in return. <laughs>